You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Brett. Bob, good to see you. Good to see you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. And this is the Non-Zero Podcast. And you're Brett Stevens, well-known columnist from New York Times, occasionally controversial, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, you've been with us before. It's been a while, though. Let I me, know. It, have you missed? Have you missed me? A little bit. I I, I worried that I'd I'd worn out my welcome. No, 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 no. I was just afraid to approach a person of your stature too soon. You know, uh, for fear of being rebuffed. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, uh, let me actually let me tell people how this came about. So I was I did a podcast a couple of months ago with your colleague at the New York Times, Tom Friedman. I've heard of him. Yes, many people have another Pulitzer Prize winner. I don't know what it is about about you. Tom, Tom has three. I, I've just got one. So uh, well, that's um, yeah. That's why he was higher on my list than you. Well, I don't blame you. Uh, the um, but I think are his are any of his first column? I guess they are. There were some are yeah, he won one for his coverage of Beirut. Then he won mm-hmm. it for his coverage of Jerusalem, and then uh, he won it. Uh, in 2002 for some of his post-9-11 coverage. Oh, I see. Okay. So anyway, well, sounds like you're keeping track. I encourage that. Uh, no, no, I pay New no. New York Times is no. a very competitive place, isn't it, Brett? <laughs> uh, so um, anyway, a commenter said, Tom and I had talked largely about Taiwan. It was around the time of Nancy Pelosi's visit, also about Ukraine. A commenter complained that we agreed too much and suggested that I talk to you, that would cure the problem of me agreeing. You know, I guess, that usually mind. does in our case. You're, you're a surefire cure for that. And uh, so I emailed you, you graciously agreed. And here we are. I think Tom and I started off talking about Taiwan, but I think right now uh, Ukraine is a little more in the news. I hope we'll, we'll get to Taiwan. The two are kind of related. But um, of course, there's been a big uh, you know, kind of military success for Ukraine on the battlefield, uh, which is raising various kinds of questions and various kinds of hopes. And so why don't we talk about that? I, I'm I'm sure you agree this was a, a big success on the battlefield, right? I don't know if you saw my column today, but that was... That was oh, exactly. I missed today's column. What did you say? That it was a big success on the battlefield and three cheers to the Biden administration for... Um, what I think has been a very uh, good handling of um, of uh, this this particular uh, crisis. Okay, uh, and yeah, in fact, they uh, they kind of let it be known uh, through a story more or less leaked to the New York Times that they played a, something of a big role in actually planning this offensive, um, which which kind of surprised me. Actually, I'm not I'm not sure that's what I'd recommend. Is is uh, is advertising our role, but I don't know. Do you have any views on that? Well, um, I, I've been speaking to a whole bunch of people, uh, always on deep background, who have very extensive knowledge of what's going on, and they aren't shy uh, to tell me that, um, uh, to give me a sense of the scope and scale of that role. And the, the the long and short of it is that we didn't just become the arsenal of, U- of Ukrainian democracy with all of the hardware we provided. We became their eyes and ears. So uh, Ukraine's remarkable ability to 
strike precisely, uh, target precisely, scoot precisely, uh, seems to have something to do with uh, the United States. Yeah, I think we were giving a lot of intelligence help from the beginning. It sounds like, according to Stasis, one thing that was kind of new this time is that they they cleared this. Well, I don't. And a clear disorder. They 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 shared this battle plan, the initial battle plan with us. We suggested it wouldn't exactly work as planned, and it evolved into this kind of two-front thing where they were going to attack in the south, and it and it wasn't just a feint, but but they did kind of like the idea of more attention being directed to the possibility of that attack as a way of opening up, you know, creating some uh, vulnerability north of there, which is where the big breakthrough happened but but anyway it sounds like we were quite involved we we did you know war gaming and stuff and gave them feedback and and uh finally agreed with them on a plan which is great because uh nothing is so important to the united states and i think to the free world right now that um uh putin uh experienced a a severe defeat um the the success for russia in um in Ukraine, I think is devastating, not just for Ukrainians or other vulnerable European countries. It would uh, send a, a pretty deadly message uh, in Asia as well. The Chinese are looking very closely at um, how Russia is faring militarily. They're looking very closely at how much the West is prepared to expend in defense of sort of embattled allies uh, uh, at risk. And uh, they're drawing conclusions. And so I think uh, I I tend to see Putin's invasion of Ukraine as at least partly a function of his perception of American weakness after Afghanistan. Uh, And I hope the Chinese are now drawing a very different lesson uh, as they consider uh, their their ambitions with Taiwan. Do you think uh, this, I mean, surely this will cause some kind of rethinking in Moscow, uh, right? Uh, I mean, do you have do you have any thoughts about what kinds of changes we might see from Putin? I mean, it seems to me there's a pretty broad spectrum of possibilities. Yeah, and and it's very hard to say. There's no question that as every as the war enters different phases, there are new dangers, and one of one very serious one that no one should discount is that Russia um, adopts what's what they call their escalate to de-escalate. Uh, approach, which um, translated into um, uh, normal terms means uh, using battlefield nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction to so shock the system of their adversary that the adversary sues for peace. That's a possibility, but I, while I don't want to discount it, uh, there's a reason Putin hasn't used it before, because not just because of the nuclear taboo. I don't think taboos do a lot to deter. Uh, this uh, this Russian president, but because I don't think it would really do very much to accomplish his his real battlefield aims for a couple of reasons. One, Ukrainian forces aren't so concentrated that um, a tactical nuclear weapon might make that much of a difference. The second thing is uh, he would be irradiating the territory that he seeks to conquer. So uh, these sorts of weapons were really devised for... Um, a kind of a the prospect of a of a battlefield in West Germany during the Cold War, where large large concentrations of troops could be wiped out at one go. I don't think that's the case here. So Putin's options are are pretty bad. Um, 
you know, one of them is uh, calling up a draft, which is would be wildly unpopular and bring home to the Russian population that this isn't just some special military operation that they'll they'll wash their hands of soon, but this is this is something closer to the order of the Second World War. Uh, the second is to um, hope that he can manage a retreat that doesn't turn into a rout. He has a real problem, clearly, with the morale of Russian troops uh, who um, uh, are ill-led, ill-equipped, uh, ill-fed, ill-paid, um, and uh, have some legitimate doubts about what the hell they're doing there in Ukraine. They're certainly not being welcomed as liberators. Yeah, the um, on the nuclear front, I guess my concern isn't so much that they would go ahead and use one to accomplish whatever the goal is, but rather that they would threaten very clearly to use one and we would call what we thought was a bluff and they would at that point feel, well, we can't be seen to bluff or something something like that. Let me, did you see this thing that Medvedev said the other day about, uh, you know, he's the former... He's the only person in the, over the last 20 years who has been president of Russia, although he was never never had the authority that Putin had at, at, as president. But uh, he's now, I guess, out of politics. I don't I don't really know. But he, he said uh, I think he occupies a minor role. Last I checked. Yeah, but but uh, I think that's right. But I guess I can't rule out the possibility that he's doing some messaging for the regime. I don't know. But and uh, he says if the West continues its, quote, unrestrained pumping of the Kiev regime with the most dangerous types of weapons, uh, this translation may be a little awkward, but, uh, you know, where uh, then then Russia's campaign will move to the next level where, quote, visible boundaries and potential predictability of actions by the parties to the conflict will be erased. And then here comes the uh, apocalyptic part, quote, and then the Western nations will not be able to sit in their clean homes laughing at how they carefully weaken Russia, Russia by proxy. Everything will be on fire around them. Their people will harvest their grief in full. The land will be on fire and the concrete will melt. And then he goes on to quote the book of Revelation, which I always consider a bad sign uh, as someone who worries about uh, the, the, the apocalypse. But, um, you know, the Russians, the Russians for the, if you've been, anyone paying close attention will have noted that Russian officials make all kinds of fire and brimstone threats that are 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 not at all serious. Medvedev, I think, became president only because he was the only man in the Russian power structure who was actually shorter than Vladimir Putin. Um, so bear that bear that Napoleonic fact, um, uh, quasi-Napoleonic fact in mind. But I remember a few years ago, some Russian official threatened Denmark with nuclear annihilation. They threatened to sink uh, a, a British aircraft carrier a few years ago. This is this is uh, uh, I think should be seen as psychological warfare and idle boasting more than anything, and I don't think Medvedev is anywhere close to the structures of power. Now, what's in Putin's head, uh, we don't know, and it would be foolish to surmise. Yeah. Um, well, what? Let's imagine. Um, I mean, I certainly don't imagine tactical nukes being a serious possibility right now. But let's imagine that uh, Ukrainian success continues. We roll back, uh, you know, keep rolling back the territory occupied by Russia. Finally, uh, actually, uh, Ukraine actually moves on Crimea and tries to take Crimea away. 
I would assume that at that point, he's in just a, a full-blown political crisis. I, I would think that he considers that something like an existential threat, not to Russia, but, but not to Russia proper, but to his regime. And uh, I got to imagine something extreme might happen. Then. I don't know what it is, but do you agree with me that that's kind of, an, a, a, for, for political reasons, an unacceptable outcome for him? Well, Crimea is, is of particular importance to the Russian national psyche, in part because uh, it was such an integral part of Russia for uh, so long, only became part of Ukraine as part of a, um, a, a kind of a bureaucratic, symbolic move by Khrushchev in the I think late 1950s or early uh, 1960s is ethnically Russian. It's uh, Crimea, I think, is a is a different uh, uh, is a different story, and I suspect that whatever their rhetoric uh, and their sense of their rights, the Ukrainian government would be very careful about trying to exert itself, even if it could, beyond the lines of February 24th, uh, 2022. That's to say that the first day mm -hmm. of, of this war. So that leaves in question these two oblasts uh, in the east occupying portions of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and then, uh, and, then the Crimean, uh, and then the Crimean Peninsula. Um, look, uh, my colleague Ross Dalfat uh, brought up what I think is a fair um, military analogy, which is the Yalu River analogy. Douglas MacArthur gets a little over overconfident. He's chasing the North Koreans up up the Korean Peninsula and in swoop um, huge numbers of Chinese troops to the aid of their of their uh, um, of their North Korean uh, ally, and we end up with a kind of a stalemated disaster in in the Korean War and the chosen chosen reservoir, all the rest of that. It's a little bit different these days, simply because Russia does not, at this moment, have the kind of military manpower to um, uh, shore up a collapsing army. So the real, really, I think the, the more interesting, and I mean that in the Chinese sense, the more interesting scenario is what happens if a rout of the Russian army like a, visible, a continued visible route of the Russian army brings extreme political turmoil in, in Moscow. Who would, if, if Putin goes, who, who replaces him? And are the forces that might replace Putin or the person who might replace Putin um, even more fascistic and extreme than, than he is? And I, I, I think uh, anyone who claims to have a good idea of what happens is, is lying. Yeah, I mean, the, the picture being presented in the West is that uh, the pressure to not do some kind of mass mobilization is kind of a grassroots pressure. It's a fear of what would happen at the grassroots. And the pressure to do a mass mobilization or something like that, to, the, the, the pressure to, quote, take the gloves off, um, which could include a lot of things in between here and, and, and a nuclear weapon, by the way, uh, including more just missile strikes on urban areas and so on. But in any event, the, the idea I think we are presented with here is that that pressure is more at the elite level. And uh, I don't know if that's true. I don't really think we're, we're getting really great uh, reporting about what's going on in Russia. So I don't know what to think, but that suggests that maybe if 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 the scenario is some kind of palace coup, yeah, it might be somebody who's more of a hardliner. 
uh, than uh, than Putin. Um, so I, I I don't know. Do you have any? Uh... Yeah, I mean, look, what you have now is a a group that is, um, my sense, a minority of Russians who are um, xenophobic, nationalistic zealots who think that the reunification of Russia with Ukraine is practically a Russian holy mission. Um, just how influential they are is um, in dispute, but they're clearly uh, uh, an important voice. And there's certainly a, um, there are people who are prepared to act, whether or not they are in, in the majority. On the other hand, mobilization of Russian forces or anything short of defending the motherland uh, is a, a catastrophe for Russia. One of the reasons is that the Russian military's brutality, the brutality of their of their training camps, of their whole conscription system, is um, is a well known fact in, in 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 Russian life. I mean, the last thing you want to be in, in Russia today is a is a young conscript, um, and that risks genuinely wholesale revolt by uh, the society. That's why Putin has been so so reluctant to to move towards conscription. So again, we'll see, but I think, you know, if Ukraine continues to be as successful in the battlefield as it has been, the real scene of interest is not going to be Donetsk, Luhansk, or Kherson. It's going to be uh, uh, around the walls of the Kremlin. And by the way, I don't know if you've been following the succession of mysterious deaths, suicide, quote unquote, suicides. Uh, um, deaths, accidents happening to various high-level people in Moscow, especially people connected to the uh, oil industry. Uh, there's a lot of foot there um, that we'll only know, you know, five or ten years out what what exactly is transpiring. Huh. The uh, you know, I I think you're right that uh, I I mean, eh, look, I have no idea, <laughs> but. Uh... I assume that if he was going to call a general mobilization, and there are there are things in between here and a general mobilization, there are, there are partial mobilizations and so on, but some sort of large scale motivation, I would think he would uh, ideally, from his point of view, be able to convince uh, Russia that there's a threat to the Russian homeland. That may be hard to do. I, I think the other two themes he would want to stress are that a there are threats to ethnic Russians in Ukraine. And I think there are more than has been reported much in the in the Western press. There are ethnic Russians in Ukraine who are who are not happy with the way they've been treated by the Ukrainian government. He, but he he he'd need to get the Russian people to identify with them, uh, and be um, you know he he needs to depict this whole thing as coming out of uh, the U.S., NATO, the West. And that's why I said earlier I'm not sure how smart it is for the. For us to advertise the role that we played in the in the last offensive, I understand the incentives to do that at the at the kind of individual and institutional level here and the political level here in the U.S. But I, I don't I don't think it's a good well, idea. I don't think, so it's an interesting question, and and um, maybe I'm not being enough of a foil for you, but it uh, it, it cuts in, a, in in two directions. On the one hand, advertising our role a is a form of political boasting, right? Right. Um, and, and um, you know, we're, the reason these things are supposed to be covert is that they're supposed to be covert, right? Um, on the other hand, there is a psychological effect, a useful psychological effect, not just on the Russian 
govern, um, governing structures, but on the public to sense that they're not up against simply the Ukrainians. They're up against the, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest military power uh, in the world and its allies in NATO. It does something, in a sense, to um, excuse the terrible military performance of, of the Russian army. When you think, well, we're, after all, we're, we're not just fighting a ragtag Ukrainian army. Not so ragtag, by the way, but a ragtag Ukrainian army in their view. Uh, but we're also squaring up against uh, United States, and there's no possibility of winning. I, I don't know ultimately how you best fine tune that uh, projection of of uh, a form of psychological um, uh, warfare, but it's water under the bridge. I mean, you know, we now know it's it's no secret to the Russians just how uh, involved we are. And by the way, I would add something. You know, before the war began as an effort at deterrence, um, the Biden administration very cannily kept uh, broadcasting uh, um, uh, uh, Russian plots to create you know, false flag uh, operations just to let the Russians know how much we knew, just how mm-hmm. naked and exposed their communication uh, systems were. Obviously, it didn't deter uh, Putin from uh, from uh, going at, uh, uh, from from uh, uh, going in, um, but it's not like the Russians are under any illusions that um, uh, we're not <laughs> we're not helping the Ukrainians every way we can. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, and you're right that the messaging can work uh, both ways. I guess. I mean, it's gone well beyond. In terms of things that I'm not sure we're well advised, it's gone well beyond acknowledging our role in intelligence and so on. I mean, there's, you know, Biden saying Putin must go and uh, our secretary of defense saying our goal is to weaken Russia. But um, in, in any event, you're you're right. Kind of at this point, it's almost water under the bridge because it, it's uh, it's not exactly a state secret that we're that we're fully involved. On the on the Taiwan issue, so you said one reason uh, that the outcome of this is important is because of uh, the implications for Taiwan, um, and I'm sure you are in favor of arming Taiwan uh, probably more rapidly than we're doing. Is that fair to say? Yes, very much so. I think we should be providing our Taiwanese friends with the kind of um, asymmetric, game-changing, portable, easily dispersed weapons that the, um, that the Ukrainians use so effectively, especially in the beginning of the war. We, the, the goal is to give Beijing every reason to think twice about trying to reunify the island with the mainland by force. Yeah, I mean, there is the possibility of this, of arming them being a two-edged sword right i mean uh you know we 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 did this with ukraine uh halfway through the trump administration we started arming them and people were saying it would be a deterrent uh but it turned out he invaded uh that so it wasn't a deterrent apparently that raises the question of whether it can actually have in principle the opposite effect in other words just to look at the, the russian case for now which is not exactly parallel to the to the chinese case but uh you know if if, if part of putin's Concern. If part of his grievance and motivation is that he sees Ukraine as becoming more and more a platform for the extension of of NATO's power, and he sees more and more weapons coming in, and more and more NATO advisors, uh, and he sees no end in sight, and he decides, well, I am going to have to do something about this, then 
he's probably going to figure the sooner the better. They're only going to be better armed next year or the year after that than they are now. So a kind of ongoing flow of weapons in principle, in, in game, you know, in game theory, theory at least, you know, can have the effect of hastening an invasion that might or might not have taken place ultimately. I mean, it might well have anyway, it might not have, but in any event, uh, it, it can in principle kind of settle the matter. Now, there are a lot of differences between China and Russia, but I would think one of them is that this effect could in principle happen, right? Which, uh, Xi Jinping says, look, I don't want him to get any better armed, and it looks like there's going to be no end in sight to uh to the US uh turning them into a you know a bigger and bigger porcupine or whatever. Let's go, right? Well that's that's a thoughtful and interesting analysis. Um uh I would rejoin that if we do begin to arm, and by the way, of course we have been arming Taiwan since mm -hmm. the for, for 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 many decades. But if we do begin to more heavily um arm them, particularly with the kind of weaponry I described, it can uh, provoke the Beijing into s acting sooner rather than later on the theory that you offered. Um, on the other hand, uh, it can also potentially deter them. However, if we don't arm them or don't arm them adequately, I don't see how that does anything to deter them. I don't think they're going to be deterred by saying, well, the Americans seem to be playing nice and within the boundaries of the way relations have been conducted for the past, well, since 1972, since the Shanghai communique. Uh, so we're going to play nice as well because fundamentally, the people who have changed the rules of the game in um, East Asia um, are um, or is the, uh, is the current Chinese leadership. Back in the 1990s, even 10, 12 years ago, um, this was not a problem. It was not a problem for uh, ranking members of Congress uh, to uh, visit Taiwan. It did not provoke the kind of uh, it did not provoke the kind of um, uh, uproar that Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit in in um, I guess it was in late early August provoked, um, and that's because the Chinese have become. Uh, territorially ambitious um, in the South China Sea, in uh, um, with respect to India. By the way, there have been military confrontations up in the up in the Himalayas uh, against the Japanese over the so-called uh, Senkaku or Daoyu uh, um, Islands with the with the Philippines against Indonesians. There is a pattern of behavior of hyper aggressiveness and uh, by by Beijing and of making claims that are um, very distinct in character from the way that China operated in the kind of uh, post-72 and then the Deng Xiaoping and even Jiang Zemin uh, uh, era. So the, the provocations are, are really coming from the Chinese side, I think, much more so than from, from the American side. Mm -hmm. And do you think uh, these expressions of their conception of their kind of rightful sphere of influence go beyond what you normally see from a rising power. I mean, you know, for example, the U.S. and the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, that's a whole hemisphere that we said uh, no one was allowed to interfere with. And of course, we played rough with a number of our neighbors to the south, including supporting coups and invading countries and kidnapping presidents and, and stuff. So 
and we're a great power and people kind of shrug and go, well, that's the way great powers behave. Do you, do you think China, comparatively speaking, kind of exceeds our level of uh, our, our conception of our own uh, kind of sphere of influence? Well, the United States has not always been, or far from it, a perfect player. I grew up in Mexico City where we were taught to um, admire the Niños Heroes, the heroic Mexican cadets who sacrificed their lives uh, to defend Mexico City against American invaders. Um, we don't live in the past, and, and uh, we have to make a calculation as to, you know, what is China doing with its great power status? And what it's doing, uh, by and large, is it is um, oppressing on an almost unimaginable scale um, uh, its own people um, or people towards whom it had um, certain diplomatic and legal commitments. I mean, the Uyghurs in the West um, uh, and uh, the Hong Kong people in, in, uh, in the East. And the kind of society that it, you know, it, it seeks to, um, um, uh, the kind of regime that it seeks to um, create uh, among its uh, among its uh, neighborhood, and and I think that's really the only issue here. I mean, if you want to say, well, other empires also behave badly, uh, it's an inarguable point. Do we want this particular aspiring empire to behave badly? I think is the is the relevant. Well, okay, uh, but so, I mean, you're saying the standards should be different for China than they were for the U.S. We should not accept the kinds of things we ourselves do. Well, first of all, I don't, well, I mean, I guess that's a historical argument. I think we live uh, in hopefully, or we used to live in hopefully an evolved century. And uh, no, we should not simply accept that China has a uh, right to behave um, uh, um, atrociously towards its neighbors and its own people just because we have our own history to reckon with. Okay. I mean, that's a small comfort to the Taiwanese to say, well, it's now... Well, what about our own present? I mean, you know, the Iraq war is in the not-so-recent past. You supported it. It was an invasion of a sovereign country. Uh... What, uh, you know, Taiwan, I mean, actually, well, we'll get into that maybe, but, uh, you know, we don't even recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but let's, just, let's say it is comparable in that respect. Let's, I, I don't think, I mean, I think you should be aware of the way the Chinese look at it and its role in Chinese history and how almost no countries do recognize Taiwan as a sovereign country. But that aside, you know, the, you can't you can't call the Iraq invasion something in the distant past. So uh, I think I think that's just characterologically very different. I mean, you can question the wisdom of the Iraq invasion, both um, you know strategically and on on the terms on which it was advertised. But the Iraq invasion did away with a dictator who was responsible for the death of a million people and who was in continuous violation of multiple standing UN resolutions and a threat to his entire neighborhood. And I don't think, I don't think you're reckoning seriously with um, the question of Iraq unless you take that other side of the balance sheet 
in terms of what in terms of what we did. I mean, uh, um, again, I'm not here to defend or make the argument for the Iraq War, but I am here to say that to to suggest that the United States removing a genuinely awful tyrant in Iraq would be somehow equivalent to Beijing removing a democratically elected um, popular and civil rights, civil liberties, respecting government in Taiwan. I think they're just totally different things. Okay, but what about some of the tyrants we support? Like in Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, if somebody tried to overthrow those governments, I don't know what, we we would probably help stop it. Um, I don't know, I'm just not seeing the consistent... Well, again, I mean, do you I'm agree sorry, there should be some kind of philosophical consist? There should be some kind of consistency to you know to your foreign policy. I mean, the things that you demand, the things that that you consider grounds for declaring war on other countries, it seems to me should, in theory, be things you don't do. And I know, I know, you're drawing this. You know, you're saying, well, but we decided this regime was unacceptable. Okay, but y- y- surely you agree. If that's your rule, that every country gets to decide which regimes are unacceptable. The world completely dissolves into chaos and anarchy and nonstop fighting, right? We can't we can't support the rule that any given nation, any given powerful nation gets to decide what regime is unacceptable. Russia decided the Ukrainian regime is unacceptable. You don't support that, right? No, I certainly do not. Um, so uh, a few uh, points in in uh, in rejoinder uh, uh, to you. Um, you're looking for some kind of uh, philosophically or morally consistent standard, which is fine in a realm of um, foreign policy, which by its very nature has always contained uh, elements of um, anarchy or a state of uh, a state of nature. So you're not going to find a great deal of consistency. You can find more consistency or uh, less consistency. Secondly, with notable exceptions, and obviously we can we we can count them. By and large, the United States has sought to secure a um, a stable, predictable um, world order of nations that are um, law abiding uh, and not threats to their um, to their neighbors, their region. Um, or or themselves. Uh, when you look at the major cases of the United States interfering in other countries, Korea, Vietnam, um, the first Gulf War uh, in 1991 uh, or in, in 2003, um, we thought and believed, and you can argue about the, the merits of that thinking or uh, belief, that we were trying to uphold um, uh, either UN, um, uh, the, the territorial sovereignty of states, or the security of uh, neighboring countries that were threatened by the behavior of, um, um, of those uh, states. So that we were doing so on behalf of a stable system of um, a kind of a reasonably stable world order not in contravention of. So, uh, you know, again, I think it's, uh, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that there's a perfect consistency over multiple American administrations 
about the conduct of American foreign policy. That's part of democratic life, that different power, different rulers, different presidents have different ideas about how to how to best conduct American foreign policy. But I will say that I'm kind of glad that it's the United States that has been the uh, 800-pound gorilla in the room over the last 75-odd years and not uh, um, Beijing or Moscow or some other regime like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll just note that uh, I'd be willing to make an extended argument that uh, saying we have not been entirely consistent over the course of our foreign policy is an understatement. I'd argue that uh, we, we, we've been pretty egregiously in violation of our professed principles, but, but that is, this isn't the time for big argument on that, and I'm sure you'd have a, a counter to that, and we'd, we'd go on all day. Um, I, I would say, uh, I mean, one, one thing I'd throw out before maybe we get back to concrete questions about Taiwan and Ukraine is just that my own view about the future of the world is that it's really imperative that we start actually trying to cultivate rules that everyone, including us, abides by. And one of them should be, uh, for example, that you can't invade uh, a sovereign nation. Um, but we need to abide by that if, if we're going to demand that others abide by it and, and so on. I, I, I think, I mean, clearly we kind of got through the Cold War while, uh, you know, behaving in many ways, hypocritically, at least in the sense that in the name of freedom, we supported all kinds of repressive regimes and abided the slaughter of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, that's that's one thing. And we, we got through it. And I guess the world didn't uh, blow up. But I'm not sure we can, given the direction of technological evolution, and everything else, I'm not sure we can get go another hundred years without the world blowing up if we don't get more serious about... Uh, respecting the, the principles we profess to respect. Look, I mean, when you, when you start to think about it, it's actually astonishing that a country with our kind of power, um, especially the power that we had, say, back in 1945, when we were 50% of the world's GDP and the sole proprietor of nuclear weaponry, um, has acted with so much restraint. Um, I mean, I know that, you know, there's some Chomskyites here who are talking, thinking, you know, Timor and Chile and one thing or another, right? But in 1945, there was very little that would have prevented us from turning Europe into an American colony, uh, much like the Soviet Union turned uh, Central Europe into a, 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 a Soviet uh, colony. Nothing that would have prevented us from seizing uh, territories for which we were um, avaricious. Uh, because uh, we, uh, uh, you know, in the way that, uh, again, the Soviet Union seized vast swaths of uh, Poland, uh, uh, Kaliningrad, you know, for, uh, as another example, pieces of, of uh, Finland. So judge the United States against not an ideal standard that you have proposed, but judge it against other powers of similar size and I think the record is actually a, a, a pretty good one. You know, I used to live in Belgium, which is a really lovely country. Um, and um, uh, why didn't the United States just take Belgium and uh, turn the Belgians into serfs for Americans to uh, lord it over? I mean, it's the, I'm, I'm saying this, it's obviously an absurd proposition, except it's not so absurd because other empires behaved in exactly that, uh, in exactly that way. So I look back at the last 
you know, with with the notable exception of the Trump administration and a few other moments, I look back at the last 77 years and think, what an extraordinary, how extraordinary it is that the United States was such a relatively benign hegemon um, when most hegemons uh, uh, are not so um, uh, are not so generous with smaller powers. Yeah, well, I'd say I think uh, if you actually do the thought of exper- experiment of us trying to subjugate Western Europe physically, <laughs> it 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 really would have been fraught with peril. And I think one thing that's happened over history is it just actually makes less and less strategic sense to actually physically conquer colonies and more and more sense for very powerful nations to exert their dominance more subtly. I, I, I just think that's kind of a trend. I mean, the fact is it would have been stupid. It wouldn't have been, it, it wouldn't have, it, it wasn't some incredible act of moral self-restraint that kept us from trying to, to, to subjugate Western Europe. It would have been stupid. It would have been, it would have been an, a disaster, I think. And uh, yeah, I that's my view. Anathema to an American tradition uh, obviously often observed in the breach of respecting the sovereignty and freedom of other nations. And that is a distinguishing factor between us and the Russians or the Chinese, which is one of the reasons why I think that we uh, we owe the Ukrainians and we owe the Taiwanese everything we can do to help them from preventing uh, um, Russia and China from uh, acting and behaving in the manner of typical empires. Well, uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, uh, you know, if you're comparing us to China, we've invaded a lot more countries than China has over the last half century. I, I think, by and large, it China defined as a country, by the way. Well, v- they invaded Vietnam in '79. What other countries did they invade? Tibet. Well, I mean, that was already. Uh, I said in the last half century. Korea. Well, Korea, I guess, wasn't a half century ago. It was now uh, uh, mm-hmm. seven years ago. No, the problem with the Chinese is that they. For the first 25 years of their communist history, they flung themselves into um, uh, self-inflicted catastrophes, which gravely weakened their power um, and left them essentially a limping state up until the later part of the uh, the 20th century. Mm. Anyway, by and large, I mean, I think uh, China is throwing around its weight, you know, kind of the way... We did. Now, let, let, let's get back to Taiwan, because I think that's the one place they actually might invade. Yeah. I just well, totally don't see them trying to invade Japan, right, South, I, South I, Korea. I want to let something pass there, which is they had treaty obligations under the Sino-British Declaration of 1984, which they flagrantly violated. And right now, a friend of mine, Jimmy Lai, uh, you know, lives at the, at the, at the displeasure, pleasure, displeasure of of Chinese officialdom, and uh, um, take a look at how the people of Hong Kong feel about um, what China has done to them and the rights that they were supposedly in, uh, uh, entitled to. I mean, that's something that's worth considering. This is not just yeah, that. That was a, that was a violation of the agreement with Britain, no doubt. I mean, of course, Hong Kong was part of China, so that's not invading another country. But when the lease, when Britain's lease of, of Hong Kong ended, and they negotiated how it ended. They did a deal that China violated. They were not supposed to uh, exert this degree of control over or this kind of control over Hong Kong for another, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Now, is he the one, is Jimmy Lai the one who started that newspaper that has Apple in the name or something? Apple Daily. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, I was very impressed with him. I heard an, I was genuinely impressed. I heard an interview with him and, and he seemed to me uh, a person of kind of actually rare uh, courage and principle. 
Yeah, one um, of the one of the finest people I've ever met. So on the um, so on Taiwan, um, again, I th that's the only country I can imagine them invading uh, without you know some kind of you know, I mean. South Korea, Japan, I just don't see it unless there's some kind of what they see as provocation that I don't imagine. But Taiwan, of course, the way they see Taiwan is as the way we, this is a strained analogy maybe, but suppose the Confederacy had held on to some island past 1865 and we said, damn it, you're not going to hold on to that forever. And the island flourished and got more and more independent, but we said, no, no, we're, we feel strongly about this. It, it's it's a little analogous to that, maybe in many ways different, but uh, it's not you know, in the a better eyes of analogy would be if the Confederacy had won the Civil War, but somehow <laughs> Long Island had managed to hold <laughs> okay, off. Well, uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure you'd rather us think of China as being comparable to the Confederacy than the Union. I for well, reasons well, I can as a, understand. As a regime but that it effectively enslaves millions of people in prison colonies, it, the comparison is not entirely uh, uh, okay. Off. Well, then it would be like that if if you want to have it that way. But my point is. They genuinely don't see Taiwan as a sovereign country, and officially, neither does most of the rest of the world, including us. But that yeah, aside, but th that's you know, we also recognize that Taiwan has a special status, right. and we have a set of um, uh, of laws governing the recognition of uh, that status, uh, going back to the the Carter administration. So uh, you know, we we do not see. Uh, uh, we have a policy of studied ambiguity in terms of our, our our view of it, but we essentially see it as an autonomous, self-governing uh, um, nation or place with uh, all of the functions of statehood minus international recognition. Right, and and you know we have we have followed this one China policy and and the way. It's worked is to, yes, on the one hand, acknowledge that uh, Taiwan is part of China so long as any change in the relationship, including full-fledged unification, is done peacefully. That's kind of our, and it's it's worked for half a century. I mean, in a way, it's just kicking the can down the road, but it's worked. And now uh, and, and now there's more concern that it may not keep working. And, and that leads to just, I guess, one question is, it sounds like you would be willing to you would want us to go to war if China did invade Taiwan. Well, you want I would the US want to to us to provide Taiwan with everything it can so that A, um, it makes war unlikely, B, it gives Taiwan a much better chance of uh, winning. But if, um, if, it came, if it came to it, uh, yes, I would want us to defend Taiwan uh, um, militarily as well. And I think, you know, if I were, I, I mean, I know this is a fact, um, chief of naval operations, I would be spending half my time thinking about uh, how we could help the Taiwanese stave off an invasion. Well, and it, it seems to me it would come to war because, you know, one difference between Taiwan is, and Ukraine is in Ukraine, we have effective control of the territory you use to funnel weapons to Ukraine. Taiwan is, of course, an island, so that wouldn't be happening. And China would presumably, uh, they might be reluctant to actually invade. They might want to kind of do some bombing and, and do a blockade. And once they do a blockade, 
you know, uh, they have that's a lot of leverage they have. And if we really want uh, Taiwan not to lose, we're basically going to have to challenge the blockade, which amounts to war at sea, right? Yeah. And um, uh, again, one of the reasons I, I'm kind of hawkish on the military side is I think we should be building a lot of submarines, not aircraft carriers, but submarines that could devastate any Chinese effort to blockade the island. Okay, so you you so you would you would go to war, and you agree with me that if China really decides to use force with force with Taiwan, and that's our policy, we probably are at war with China. Yeah, it's quite possible, and hopefully, it won't come to that. Okay, now, so the principle. Let me let me let me get back to Ukraine a little. Uh, there is, as I said, there are differences between the relationship of China to Taiwan and Russia to Ukraine. What is the principle you think is at stake in Ukraine? In other words, the main reason we should be doing what we're doing, uh, supplying Ukraine with weapons and, and helping them with intelligence and so on. Well, the principle is that a, not just a sovereign, but a democratic nation uh, should have its borders respected, particularly against very powerful and aggressive neighbors. And the United States as a profound interest in upholding that principle and being seen to uphold that principle in a way that serves as a deterrent to uh, other aggressively minded uh, uh, states. So um, that I think is, is what is um, chiefly at stake in Ukraine. I mean, uh, you know, Ukraine is not really of particular interest to the United States in traditional strategic metrics. Obviously, it provides a lot of potash and um, grain and and other things to the uh, things to the world. Uh, it's uh, it's not a small country. It's about the size of France. Um, but much more important is the idea that the United States has an obligation to other free countries around the world as the biggest of the democracies to support a world that is friendly towards law-abiding, democratic, uh, liberal-minded uh, governments. Um, and Ukraine, for all its defects, is a hell of a lot more that than, uh, you know, its, its, its larger neighbor. That's true. I mean, it's not, not a... You know, not as liberal a democracy as some, but certainly much more of a democracy than Russia. Um, the uh, so so anyway, I just wanted to be clear that the fact that it's a democracy looms large for you. You're not you're not just defending the principle of the the sanctity of the borders of sovereign nations, which I mean, you don't you you don't actually believe in, but right? You, but no, I'm being, I'm being perfectly consistent here. Right? No, I I, um, I I see the sense in which you are. You you uh, you're saying you don't see the the uh, the borders of sovereign nations as inviolable in principle. Like if we see Iraq and we don't approve, we think the government is bad or they're doing bad stuff, we can violate that border. But that's because it's like not a liberal democracy. And if it is a liberal, and similarly, I guess if Russia invaded a country that wasn't a democracy, you're not sure how you'd come out. It would depend on the country. But anyway, yeah, Russia had invaded Kazakhstan and it sent countries, mm -hmm. it sent troops there, as it as it in fact did uh, just just before mm -hmm. just before this this uh, this war. I feel very differently um, yeah. about it. But I think there are a number of um, highly justifiable rationales 
or when the United States can intervene militarily in the sovereign affairs of another nation. One of them, obviously, is when it threatens its neighbors or the peace of the world. Um, uh, you know, let's say we knew that Iran wasn't only about to roll out uh, an atomic bomb, but it was going to use that weapon imminently against uh, Israel or another uh, neighbor, and only the United States could prevent that bomb from from you know being loaded onto a missile. I think that's a very good justification. Another one is imagine Rwanda in 1994 during the genocide. Um, I think the United States had a moral obligation to do uh, what it could to slow and ideally stop the genocide before it took 500 or 800,000 lives or however many uh, it was. So I think there, there, are, there are a number of scenarios where it's, it's, it's justified for the United States to inter, um, uh, intervene. And, and it's particularly justified when we see ourselves, if we see ourselves as the guarantor of a liberal world order, to guarantee as best as we can that liberal world order to 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 be to 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 be as good as our 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 word and 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 live up to our reputation yeah i mean it's funny liberal world order you know um i had john eikenberry on the on the podcast and he i think came up with the term liberal internationalism in 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 uh, conjunction with a co-author i think dan dudney and he kind of acknowledged there's an ambiguity to liberal internationalism. Some people think of it as, you know, upholding a liberal order that's liberal in the sense of encouraging liberal democracy. Some people think of it more strictly about the relations among nations, right? Like the rules are about relations among nations. And I think that's, uh, that's one, one source of the, uh, the tension between you and me. So, for example, you take a case like Kosovo, you probably supported the 1990. Uh, 99 intervention. It was a violation of Serbia's sovereignty uh, on behalf of, uh, you know, the, the I guess the Kosovo Liberation Army and everything they, they represented. But uh, you would say that's okay, even though that it wasn't a democracy we were defending. There wasn't a democracy in Kosovo at that point, right? It so it wasn't, wasn't that. Kosovo. What's that? It wasn't a, there. Was, there wasn't even a country there. What, what, right. So, what, what was the what was the principle well, well, there Clinton, for violating the, sovereignty? Well, Bill Clinton, the, the Kosovo crisis had been going on for some uh, for 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 uh, some time, and the Clinton administration had actually shown a tremendous amount of restraint and an effort to stop Milosevic from doing in Kosovo what we'd already seen him done do in Bosnia, um, and uh, Milosevic. Did uh, did exactly you know what he had done previously in Bosnia? Well, actually, no, it wasn't on that scale at that point. Maybe we prevented it. Who knows? It might have become that, and it wasn't well, I mean, great. After, but after after Srebrenica, right, and after right. The, the 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 siege of Sarajevo and the atrocities that um, Serbs and their and their allies committed uh, there, it was a reasonable supposition by the uh, by uh, Clinton and Tony Blair that uh, something similar could happen in Kosovo. And actually, Kosovo has stood itself up uh, uh, pretty well as a, as a decent uh, Balkan state uh, since, since it achieved a effective or actually a full, uh, 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 full independence. So I think that's a very good example of, a, of an intervention that worked and probably uh, spared Kosovars of, of, of Srebrenica-like uh, scenarios. Um. 
Yeah, the uh, I mean, I guess see one one difference I see. I mean, first of all, there is the magnitude. There was there was a a a, a true a true horrific massacre uh, that happened in Bosnia. You may be right that what one would have happened in Kosovo. The uh, uh, and obviously, so I'm sure you know some ethnic cleansing uh, went on. It probably went on to some extent on the other side as well. I'm definitely not an expert on that, but there was you know hideous, horrible stuff going on in Kosovo. There's no doubt. One difference somebody of my persuasion points to is that the intervention in Bosnia, our intervention there was lawful in the sense that it had the, the authorization of the Security Council. So it wasn't a violation of international law, whereas the one in Kosovo was. And I, and I understand why someone like you does not want to uh, kind of have to abide slavishly by uh, the you know the, the, the clearance of the Security Council, given the fact, right, that, that all these powerful countries China, Russia, and us have veto power. Um, I understand that. At the same time, I guess I'd say, uh, if you're asking me, why am I uh, so kind of, I guess, seemingly narrow-minded from your point of view in wanting to focus on international law, I guess it's the following. I, I grant you that you're, you can claim consistency. If you say, look, my criteria for, for intervening are if a country invades a, a sovereign country or uh, it does things I consider beyond the pale within the country or it's a menace to its neighborhood in a way that I consider beyond the pale, um, I understand you, you can always you know, it's too, it's just too flexible for, for my purposes. And, and that's not an aesthetic judgment, right? I mean, it, it gives you, my concern is if you say, okay, that's the way we're going to do these things. If you, it, you, you can name three criteria for invasion and China does the same thing. And they say, well, we deem this nation to be a menace to its neighborhood. And we deem this nation to be uh, behaving uh, unacceptably to its population, you know, like we've decided that, I don't know, they, whatever, uh, not providing universal medical care is, is, you know, unacceptable. I don't know. But, but if, if you, if you, if it gets that loose, uh, I just don't see any way of uh, navigating the next hundred years in ways that allow the great powers uh, to not kind of blow up the world and moreover to cooperate on a lot of problems that I think urgently need cooperation. Climate change being only one of, I would say, half a dozen uh, equally important ones. But you, you take my point that, that you're, you can claim consistency, but it's kind of too easy for you to always claim consistency. Yeah, I take your point and I think you're making a, you know, a very thoughtful argument. The thing is, if the United States um, Let's roll the tape back, you know, in a theoretical scenario. And let's say that the United States abides from the very beginning by the John Quincy Adams maxim, you know, we do not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We are the well-wishers of liberty everywhere, but the vindicators only of our own. I'm quoting that from memory, so I might have gotten uh, missed a few words, but you get, you get the general sense. Let's say the United States had always behaved that way. Um, up to the point that we had acceded to the views of the America First Committee in um, just before World War II, and we had heeded the advice of um, Robert Taft and Henry Wallace, interestingly a figure of the far right, or the 
right and of the of the left uh, after World War II, and we had stuck to our proverbial knitting, would China, Russia, or whatever other aggressive powers have said, well, the United States is being very consistent and very moral about its uh, adherence to non-intervention and to the rules of, of the road and to uh, kind of an international morality. And would that have moderated their behavior or, on the contrary, would that have simply told them that they would face no serious opposition, no opposition whatsoever from the only other power that could seriously confront them and blunt their designs to subjugate um, a Korean peninsula to the rule of Kim Il-sung and uh, Europe to the rule of the Ceausescu's of the world. Um, what, what I think you're advocating in, in whatever it means in theory, in, in practice would have simply been um, an invitation to uh, very aggressive, very nasty regimes to behave with aggression and nastiness. And so I'd rather take my my view of things that uh, is not uh, perfectly pure and open to the charge of hypocrisy, because I'd rather live in a world where, you know, if I go to Estonia or I go to South Korea, um, uh, I, I don't go to places governed by fear. Yeah, I mean, just on, on the point of World War II, I would just emphasize that, uh, you know, by my lights, that wasn't uh, a tough call. I mean, Germany had actually committed transporter aggression by the time long before we got into the war. Um, and uh, that's a clear violation of international law. And uh, well, but nothing obliged us to go and send. Well, nothing obliged us, but but a, a clear cut, up, that is up that storming is, up Omaha Beach. But that's a clear cut violation of the of the most almost the most fundamental principle of uh, international law. That's not a close call. Uh, you know, I, I should also say that even um, even when you get beyond transborder aggression, uh, you know, even I would not. Uh, I would be fine with having intervened in a case like Rwanda, for example. And of course, World War II in, in that you know, context provides us ultimately with a whole second justification for intervening, um, uh, you know, which is uh, the Holocaust. Let me ask but, you, are there, uh, so let's assume, you know, one of the problems, uh, you, you raised an interesting point earlier, which you kind of dropped or we got lost in the course of our conversation, but you know, these two concepts of the liberal international order, one of which you might describe uh, as being like um, the free world has a set of interests and one of its interests is, is not only preserving itself, but wherever possible, extending its ambit, protecting people we believe are vulnerable in, at, at the peripheries of, of the world, a kind of a free world concept of the liberal international order. And the other is... Uh, Rules is rules. Like mm -hmm. uh, um, there's a UN Security Council. It's imperfect, but these are the rules we signed on to, and we have to accept uh, that um, it won't always go our way. Uh, but we're better off having this system uh, in place. One of the things that I I find objectionable is that I do not want China or Russia to be able to dictate, say, how the United States should act vis-a-vis -vis Syria when Syrian civilians are being gassed with sarin 
uh, when genocide is taking place on a large scale. And the Bashar Assad regime has the benefit of having two allies with veto power on the on the Security Council. I don't think that is actually at all a good system. Um, frankly, if it were up to me, the United States would simply withdraw from the United Nations. I think the United Nations on, on, on the whole has been a net negative for the peace and security of the world. Well, Syria is a whole nother argument. Uh, and my view is, I'm sure, very different from yours. I, I, I think if magically you could go back in time and uh, we and our allies had not flooded Syria with weapons, you'd have millions fewer ref refugees and way, way, way fewer dead people. And uh, and sadly, Assad would still be in power, but he's in power anyway. Uh, but that's a that's a long. I'd I'd be happy to have a whole conversation on Syria if you want. But oh, anytime, yeah. Okay, well, uh, be careful what you uh, agree to. Um, let's see. Uh, anything else we should? Uh, I mean, let me let me just uh, say finally, my my, you know, like a lot of people of my kind of my ideological persuasion. I have an ambivalence about Ukraine in the sense that for Russia to invade Ukraine is a clear violation of international law, should be punished. You don't want them to wind up with any positive reinforcement for it. On the other hand, uh, I'm more mindful than some that we ourselves have in the not too recent past uh, violated exactly that part of international law. And it isn't just the hypocrisy per se it isn't just so-called whataboutism, which is personally something I'm willing to defend, but that aside, what it is is that uh, because we have not, I mean, I think what the world needs to do, I think what the U.S. should have been doing since the Cold War is cultivating, uh, fostering the norm of compliance with international law. And I actually think we started off not doing a bad job of that for a while, and then we quit. Uh, and then we started doing a very bad job of it. But but in any event, my what I what I what I fear well, is when that when did we start doing a bad job of it? Well, Kosovo was was by most lights an illegal intervention, but certainly the Iraq War was an illegal intervention. I mean, why don't you go back further? Intervention in Guatemala by the oh Isis sure Coast sure sure no, but I mean after the Cold War, there was a chance to turn over a new leaf, and George uh, the first George Bush. You know, he, he decided, hey, let's make use of the UN. The, first, the Persian Gulf War was legal, right? The Bosnia intervention was legal. Yeah, because he took advantage of a moment of unique weakness uh, in our principal adversary, uh, Russia, um, when it was um, essentially complying with us. And China was still, nom not nominally, uh, um, uh, an ally of the United States. So... You know, what, what you're describing as principle was really just a happy circumstance where the United States got what it wanted um, uh, without, without facing any, uh, you know, any opposition. Well, maybe, but what I'm yeah. saying is that what the United States should have wanted, what would have been in the national self-interest of the United States in the long run is to continue to foster the norm of compliance with international law, but but anyway, what what the I was going to the issue the issue with your point. I mean, my 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 issue with your point. Uh, you know, it gets back to a wonderful line, a wonderful observation from Walter Lippmann, uh, the you know the famous columnist uh, about uh, interwar disarmament. You know, the 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 various 
uh, conventions between 1920 and 1940 to limit the size of battleships and so on. And he said something to the effect that disarmament served very wonderfully, served very, was, a, was a very, disarmament was a very effective means of disarming the countries that believed in disarmament. So the compliance will end up coming from countries that you don't need to worry about anyway. I mean, uh, the, the Hollands and Denmarks of the world are going to be responsible, compliant nations. Uh, but you have to organize, um, you, you have to have a, a, a concept of foreign policy that takes into account the reality that some countries, however much you may regret it, are not going to be compliant because they are not really interested in upholding the rules of the game. They're interested well, in I, I mean, overthrowing you know, those rules. That's a whole other conversation I could have with you, whether in principle Russia could have been drawn into the community of nations. They did not violate the borders of any country until uh you know fairly well into into Putin's tenure after he and a number of other people including Bill Burns now director of the CIA said look Ukraine and NATO is a complete red line for Russia and we nonetheless went on went ahead and uh invited Ukraine to jo to join uh NATO in 2008 until that happened he had been compliant. He even brought up the possibility of joining NATO. Anyway, it's a whole nother conversation, but you're accepting it as like a given that Russia would be behaving exactly as it's behaving now if we ourselves had had complied with international law and also, you know, kind of taken pains to uh, to accommodate Russia in some cases in recognition of the fact that it's a nuclear power that's making a difficult transition uh, you know, reconciling itself to a lower stature and on and on. I, I don't well, hang on. Hang on. I, I don't want to accuse you of naivete. No, go ahead. I okay, encourage I'm going to accuse you. Makes me feel young. Vladimir Putin came to power almost certainly in some of the foulest ways, uh, reminiscent of Richard II. Um, there is abundant evidence that his KGB was planting bombs in Russian apartment buildings and killing hundreds of Russians of civilians as a pretext to start a second Chechen war, which was then conducted with genocidal intent and fury. He then installed one, a psychopath to rule Chechnya, and, and almost from the beginning, although we closed our eyes to it, began imposing a kind of a reign of terror against various um, figures who were uh, noting his behavior. One of them was Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned in, in a form of nuclear terrorism with, with uh, uh, polonium uh, poisoning. Anna Politkovskaya, uh, among many journalists who, 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 whose life was, was ended in a horrific way, almost certainly at the behest of um, uh, the, the Russian government. Boris Nemtsov, gunned down in the shadows of, of, of the Kremlin. Admittedly, that was a little later, but there were plenty of other political figures. Magnitsky, I mean, this was a criminal regime from day one. Day one, and it wasn't, uh, you know, we, we, it, it, the, the mistake I think that you, in this conversation, I sometimes feel you fall into is the idea that these guys like Putin are just reacting to bad American behavior. Well, American behavior may be good or bad, but these are bad dudes. These are really bad dudes, and and this is th this is not a case of of you know a uh, of a well-meaning Russian leader who simply felt like his 
his uh, national, uh, 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 his basic uh, uh, needs as a national leader were being violated by an aggressive West. This was a KGB agent who willed himself to power and began conducting a criminal regime from day one. Not even before day one, day minus whatever, when he became prime minister uh, under Yeltsin. So, so we should be, you know, we, we need to be realistic about who it is that that we are dealing with. This is not a guy who has uh, legitimate grounds for uh, for for the kind of behavior he's conducted. Well, if if you think I'm so naive that I don't think. Putin is a ruthless, brutal, murderous person. I have very bad news for you. I'm not that naive. Okay, good. Uh, Now, I would say on the point of the apartment bombings by the KGB, just as a a footnote, the most recent Putin biography, which was uh, reviewed in the New York Times uh, about a month ago, and and is, you know, getting respectful treatment. It's a serious biography, argues that that wasn't the KGB. I actually uh, looked at that part of the book, and I, I... I would say it moves the needle from uh, chances of it being KGB being, you know, 58% to being 42%. It wasn't, it wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't a killer argument, but that aside, that's the, it, that's not a settled matter. But look, yeah, Putin, Putin, murderous thug, sure. That's not the question. And have we had American presidents who could easily abide the death of hundreds of thousands of foreigners uh, with us having covert involvement in it and them not mine and them sleeping at night. Yeah. We, you know, there's some really super, uh, not, 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 you know, super morally hypersensitive people who go a long way in politics in a lot of countries. But you're, you're right that in Russia, there's a distinctively brutal path you could take to power in post Soviet Russia and for that matter in Soviet, in Soviet Russia. That's all true. I'm. I was talking about a single thing, which is, had he abided by this one principle of international law up until a given point, Chechnya, of course, is part of Russia. What he did is brutal. Uh, more evidence that that uh, he may be a psychopath and so on. But what I was talking about uh, was, look, if world peace depends on leaders and all the world's leaders being nice people, we're toast. It depends on uh, arranging their incentives such that they don't invade a bunch of other countries and do a bunch of other stuff. I'm just making the point that if I did have this whole other conversation with you about whether Russia could or whether we have or have not horribly mismanaged our relationship with Russia over the last quarter century, which I think we have, beginning with NATO expansion, um, I would make the point that up until that threshold of 2008, where a lot of things happened, he delivered a speech at Munich saying, look, the U.S. is running roughshod on the world, violating international law. You know, he didn't want NATO expanded to include Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. And then in 2008, Bush said, sit down, shut up, punk. We're going to bring Ukraine into NATO. Uh, and look, I'm willing to acknowledge it. it's it's not some purely a, a security consideration on Putin's part, NATO. It is partly that. But I think it's also... Uh, the issue of respect, you know, he famously has a chip on his shoulder uh, and I'm sure he saw it as a sign of disrespect that he, he's never been able to uh, get America to take his, his views on Ukraine seriously and all that. Uh, anyway, my, my you're larger- reminding me, You're reminding me of one of the great exchanges in the film Pulp Fiction. Uh, just I'm not before... sure I'm going to be flattered by this comparison, but go ahead. <laughs> 
Well, it's just before the John Travolta and Samuel Jackson characters uh, walk into um, uh, an apartment of some small time thieves and, and kill them all. But they're having a conversation about um, uh, whether um, their their kind of boss ordered the defenestration of some local gangster on account of a foot massage given to this gangster's wife, um, played memorably by Uma Thurman. And uh, somehow the subject of whether a foot massage is the equivalent of oral sex uh, uh, um, comes up. And Samuel Jack, uh, John Travolta's character tries to make the case that they're sort of analogous, and uh, Jackson kind of swats him down. Uh, I wish I could remember the exchange because it's hilarious. But your comparison of Putin with um, uh, American leaders uh, is that kind of stretch. You know, we, we all in the United States, those of us with at least not all, some of us, I'm sure you're included in this, were horrified when Trump went around just calling the media the enemy of the American people. Now, imagine if some of my colleagues at the New York Times found themselves being thrown off of windows, but you know, when suddenly FBI agents showed up. Imagine if um, uh, critics of Trump living in London started dying horrible deaths from uh, um, exotic uh, um, agents. Um, I think that would begin to tell you the difference between the two. And I'm, I'm, I'm using Trump deliberately because we think of him, you and I, I'm sure, as probably the worst American president ever, right? Or at least since Buchanan. And he was the worst. And yet next to him, he is a choir boy compared to the way in which Vladimir Putin has behaved. So there's there's just no equivalence that, you know, Trump was the foot massage in that particular analogy. Well, if 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 listeners take away nothing else about my views, I, I just want to drive home that I do not consider a foot massage tantamount to oral sex. OK, I want to be extremely clear about that. Well, uh, I, I thought we'd bring the conversation around to a new level of seriousness. You, you've really you've re- I, I want to thank you for elevating my platform. Um, the the. Uh, let me just quickly say, I'm not saying that that uh, you know that various leaders who who countenance American leaders who countenanced uh, various the deaths of various uh, civilians in various countries are the moral equivalent of Putin. Um, there may be, you know, but but I, I am saying that there are a lot of leaders who aren't choir boys and. You know the the cultivating a community of nations where people more or less abide by agreed upon rules of the road and don't invade other countries, which I still think is possible, even though we're we're we've never uh, achieved it, is not in my view dependent on there being choir boys because that's never going to happen. And, and they may even be psychopaths, uh, and they and they may be murderous thugs, but uh, I still think there's a way of. Uh, Kind of corralling those impulses and 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 preventing certain forms of expressing those impulses in principle. So I I uh, but above all, but above all, I do not consider foot massage tantamount to oral sex. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see the social. Although media I gotta say, if you ever had a really good foot conversation, massage, have you ever had a really good foot massage? I mean, you know, it's not. I just want to say it's not a crazy proposition. I just do not subscribe to it. Okay. You know, I certainly have not had that kind of foot massage. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna. There are various things I could say. I'm gonna say none of them. Um, but are, is there anything else uh, you want to? You know, one last point that I'm just thinking. I mean, I'm sort of thinking a lot, but. Um, if, uh, if your great grandfather had been, uh, and I'm not saying he was, um, <laughs> uh, a racist or a bigot, um, a wife beater, whatever, um, it would not mean that you would either behave that way or look with approval at people who are behaving that way in the present. The fact that we have a um, very uneven past as a country, morally speaking, doesn't mean that we should look with any kind of indulgence at countries that today behave in the way that some past generation of our own uh, once behaved. I think that's, I'll have to think that through because I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. But that is that maybe helps describe my objection to your previous point about China merely behaving now the way the United States did, say, at the uh, towards the um, end of the 19th century or or, or even uh, uh, even before uh, before then. Uh, I don't think we should paralyze ourselves or tie ourselves into knots when it comes to not just objecting to Chinese behavior, but trying to oppose Chinese behavior, just because some, some of our own uh, predecessors um, uh, behaved in ways that we now deplore. Well, I guess my final remark would be, I, 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 sadly, I don't think we have to go back nearly that far in American history uh, to find us behaving in ways that renders hypocritical uh, a lot of the things we expect of other nations, um, but don't need to get into that more deeply. I mean, the, the other, the disclaimer I should always throw out is that when I, you know, explain why other countries do things or say they are in some respects comparable to U.S. behavior, I'm not justifying them. Putin violated international law by invading Ukraine. He is to blame for that even if I think it might not have happened had we managed our relationship with him more wisely. He's still the criminal. Um, and similarly, uh, I, would, I would not uh, ever justify China's invasion of Taiwan or anything else. I, I just have to say this because there's a tendency to conflate various things uh, people like me say with actually you know, trying to exculpate people for bad behavior, which I'm uh, not trying to do. Um, so. We have agreed that we should have another conversation at some point. It sounds like. yeah. I I, I, I am I am honored to be uh, on your podcast. I say that with real sincerity. Well, I'm honored that you've come on my podcast uh, and elevated and elevated my platform, as I said. Well, I don't know if I elevated it. I'm now thinking that this foot massage analogy is going to haunt me for 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 another uh, for a number of years, at least until my next um, bizarre comparison. Well, I guess that gives you an incentive to come up with another bizarre comparison, doesn't it? 
And, and maybe it's you'll, maybe you'll actually, honor me by doing it on this platform. I'll do that. And in the meantime, I'll go watch Pulp Fiction again. Yeah, I'm overdue too. All, All right. right. Thanks a lot, Brett. Bob, be well. Thanks, Noreen. Okay.